Let's listen as Matthew gives a detailed account of the trial of Jesus with all its main characters. Our response to this account reveals who we are deep inside. Caiaphas the high priest, Pilate, Judas, or Peter? Which person in the trial of Jesus describes you? There was a fellow named Anatole France that back in Christmas Day, 1891, he pictured Pontius Pilate uh, reminiscing about his stint in Judea during the 30s. And he basically said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, I don't remember him. And the idea was really, France wrote this article, he was kind of a cynic, and he wanted to get all the clerical, all the religious guys upset with him, and he wanted all the pious ladies, in quotes, to, you know, to to breathe fire and brimstone against them, kind of like some of the comments that are made by our comedians and everything else. What's interesting about his comment is that it really underscores one of the real proofs of our faith, that there are some ways in which Jesus of Nazareth in the first century might not have seemed like such a big deal to the religious leaders and to Pilate as a Roman leader. Although I really believe as we go back to the gospel record like we are today, as we turn to Matthew chapter 26, and let's look back there at Matthew 26, I think that the Jewish high priest Caiaphas and Annas, who was his father-in-law, I think they would have remembered Jesus, and they would have come to the conclusion that they had done what they felt they needed to do. And Pilate, I think, would have definitely remembered Jesus. In other words, Francis' comment I don't think is really true. I think he would have remembered loud and clear what happened probably in the spring of 33 AD. And you remember, what I want all of you to understand is that now 2,000 years have gone by. And whatever you believe about Jesus, and most of you are committed to him, but you're going to go out among a lot of people this coming week that aren't that committed to him. And you're going to be tempted at different times in your life to turn away from him or to not believe in him. 2,000 years have gone by, and as I've lived my life, as I look back over my life, and I went to an elementary school where hardly anybody knew Jesus, and hardly any of my kids went to evangelical churches, they didn't even know what an evangelist was hardly, and I remember being this kid that was really sometimes ashamed, sometimes afraid to say what I believed about Jesus, because the culture was so antagonistic to that. In fact, I can even remember going to the hospital in my early days, even down here, because where I was raised in New Jersey, when a, a minister went to the hospital, often, it's not that way now, but often when I was a kid, I remember going with my dad, and my dad would say that he was the minister of the gospel, and he would be treated like dirt. And when you're a little kid, you don't like to be treated like dirt. And so to be honest with you, there's a part of me that had a little bit of fear. Your culture isn't like that. To be honest with you, here in the, in the Texas area, when I go to the hospital, I'm usually treated like royalty. And there's been a whole major shift in many ways of doctors really recognizing how much we need the spiritual dimension, even among those that don't believe in him. But, but you're, you're going to face, I guarantee you, maybe this week, maybe at business, maybe at school, you're going to face tension. Should I go boldly up front for Jesus? Now, what the trial of Jesus does as we read this account is it helps us to see different people. And that's what I'd like you to do this morning. Is I want you, as you read this account, to look at the different people. They're going to be introduced. It's like a very dramatic scene, and some of you have imaginary pictures of how you're getting it. But what I want you to do is we want to look really carefully at Matthew's testimony. And I want you to see the different personalities that Matthew introduces us to. As I read the account, I ask myself, who am I in this story? 
So let's begin. We have Jesus arrested. Matthew picked up the story in verse 57. Last week we studied about Jesus being captured in the garden, Jesus being arrested. We learned those powerful statements about not taking the sword. I taught you a lot about that at believers in Christ, so we can't use power. We can't use the power of the sword. We can't use the power of politics to get our Christian way, to get our Christian commitment into people's lives. That's what Jesus has shown us. It has to be what we do by loving them and how we challenge them to a personal commitment with Jesus. That's what we've talked about last week in the arrest of Jesus. As we move into verse 57, it says that those who had arrested Jesus, so Matthew picks up the scene again. So you want to have this picture that they've got Jesus bound and they take him down through the Kidron Valley again. They go up into maybe the western section of Jerusalem. Although when you go to Israel today, they'll show you what was apparently Caiaphas' house. That's one of those sites in in Jerusalem that I wouldn't go to the stake for. We really don't know exactly where Caiaphas' house was. We can give kind of the general area of the city. I know that it's in the richer section of the city. It was probably a palace and probably Caiaphas and Annas and members of the whole high priest family, which is a whole family of different ones that they're passing the high priesthood through Pilate, the Roman appointment. It's not a legitimate Aaronic priesthood. But they're living in this royal palace. And you want to picture a building that has like rooms, maybe a couple stories, but in the middle you have a courtyard. And that's the picture. That's the way they would build their homes. Kind of like a Latin style of homes often uh, in Italy or in Latin America. I've often been in homes like this where it'll be like a three-sided rectangular building with an open courtyard in the middle. And that's kind of the picture that you want to have here. So there's a courtyard where there can be a fire that's going where Peter can be. They lead Jesus, that after they arrested him, to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So we're introduced, first of all, to the first dramatic figure. You want to think about Caiaphas. You want to think about the scribes. The scribes are the legal experts. They're the ones that are really um, very strict about applying the law of Moses. And the elders of the people would be like the godly fathers that guide the nation. If you're reading this text in the first century, if you're Jewish, then you think in terms of Caiaphas. He represents the religious professionals who rule over the temple cult in Jerusalem. The scribes represent the legal experts that if you broke the law of Moses, you would be pulled in before them. The elders represent those that are acknowledged to be mature leaders among the people of Israel. So these are the religious guys. In Judaism, in the first century, religion and politics is all united together. These are the people that guide the Jewish people religiously. So this is the first person we're introduced to. To give you a feel for this, these are people that you're going to meet, and some of you are like this. Some of you in your heart are really into religion. You're really into buildings. You're really into holy places. You're really into holy rituals. And what I want you to know is that Caiaphas represents a priest that has a holy temple that he's overseeing. There was a time in which the Shekinah glory, the glory of the immediate presence of God, rested upon this temple. Ezekiel describes that Shekinah glory departing that temple after the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And he sees the glory departing. 400 years have gone by and the glory hasn't returned. It's become an empty shell. When the Roman general Pompey went into the Holy of Holies, he was shocked. There was nothing there. It was empty. 
And that blew his mind because he was a pagan idolater, thought there should be images, you know, Zeus or Jupiter or, or something, or, you know, Adonai, the Hebrew God, but nothing was there. And one of the sad realities is there was nothing there. It was a shell. It doesn't mean that there weren't people that knew God. Like there were people like Simeon, people like Anna, people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, people like Elizabeth, people like Zechariah, one of the priests who really worshipped Yahweh. And they were looking forward to coming back. But there was also a religious aristocracy, religious elites, and you're going to meet them in your own culture. They're going to develop buildings. They're going to develop organizations. Some of you will want to get pulled into that because there's tremendous power and influence over people to have a place and to have ritual and to have all these sacrifices going on and to have all this religious stuff going on is a very powerful thing. And Caiaphas represents that. Then Matthew introduces us to another character. There's the religious guy, Caiaphas, the religious professional. He has all of his cohorts around him. Peter followed him. Now we have the preeminent disciple, Peter. But Peter followed him at a distance. And I want you to see, we knock Peter, but nobody else is following. Although we know from John's gospel that the beloved disciple John is with Peter. So two of the disciples, when they ran, they recanted a little bit. And they care enough about their Savior that they start connecting again, but they're far away. They're following from a distance. They're not right up there with Jesus. They're not joining with him, saying, whatever you face, I'm going to face, like friends should really do and co-patriots should do. Peter wants to know. He, and part of what I want you to feel about Peter is that he really wants to keep his commitment. He really wants to keep his vow to Jesus. So he's following from a distance. And Matthew introduces him here. He comes right up to the courtyard of the high priest. So he comes in this, this gateway, comes into the courtyard, which is an open air. Jesus is being tried in a room that's right nearby, probably a room where Peter can see what's going on. And he can hear, maybe not hear the exact conversation, but he can hear the trial that's taking place. He comes right up to the courtyard. He entered in sat down with the guards to see the outcome, to see the end of it. Peter right now introduces what some of you are like and what I can be like. We can be a disciple like we really... Peter for sure knows Jesus. Peter for sure has come to the point that he understands who Jesus is. He's the one that confessed earlier in the book of Matthew when Jesus said, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, only heaven could reveal that to you. And I give you the keys of the kingdom. And Peter, later on in the book of Acts, is going to give the first evangelistic message. And, and through him, the birth of the church is going to take place. But right now, he's following from a distance, but he wants to see what's going to end up. And so Matthew introduces his tension. What's Peter going to do? What's Peter going to do? He fell asleep in the garden. He couldn't pray with Jesus. At the Last Supper, he's really strong, man. He's going to go to Jesus, even be willing to die for him. And I want you to ask yourself, is that a little bit like me? Guys, I read these stories, Matthew exposes the way reality is, the way you are, the way I am. And I want you to feel Peter. Right now, Peter is going back and forth. I love my master. I made a promise to him. And everyone else has turned tail and run except for John and Peter. And Peter now is right with some of the servants. Probably not the servants that arrested him because he cut off one of their ears. You know, some of those guys probably took their leave. But there's other servants that would probably explain some of the historical reality going on here. There's other servants that really don't know Peter. And so he's there warming himself by the fire. Some of the other gospels fill in those details. Now we come back to the chief priest, back to the trial. Now the chief priests, 
That's not just Caiaphas, but all of his cohorts, all of his family. Remember that the Romans are appointing chief priests according to their whims. And what really happened is they kept it in Annas' family, Annas and Caiaphas, and all these priests that rule from about the time of Herod the Great and Jesus' birth until later in this century, until the destruction of Jerusalem. It's all done by this political intrigue of the Romans, and these chief priests would maintain their title. So sometimes the gospel will refer to Annas as a high priest, and they'll refer to Caiaphas as a high priest. It's not a mistake. It's what was really going on in the first century. It says here that the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin, so Matthew wants you to understand that this is a meeting at night. This is a real trial. I think Matthew is presenting to you that the judges have gathered. Now all the people are going to gather. They're going to be seeking for witnesses. They have the accused. They're going to come to a verdict, and they're going to deliver him over for his sentence. So it says that the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence. This is the thing that I want you to feel. Now, you think that trials in our own day sometimes are just a bunch of, they've already decided what they're going to do. And I know uh, Mary and I have gone to meetings in our own town sometimes where I felt that everyone already uh, had decided, the powers that be had already decided what they were going to do before we met. And that's kind of what's going on here. We have the witnesses gathered. Look what it says, first of all. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, what were they doing? Now, what do you know about legal things? A per, a, the accused is innocent until proven guilty. You're supposed to be finding witnesses that will tell the truth about him, right? Not finding witnesses that are going to accuse him falsely. So that's what I want you to see. That right away, Matthew introduced, introduces to us that this is really not a legitimate trial where people are actually trying to find the truth. Now, is that the way the real world works sometimes? I often have this idealistic view that in the courtroom... The judges are unbiased, the lawyers are unbiased, the jury's unbiased, everyone's trying just to, to do their own thing and they're really trying to evaluate the case. I want you to know that that's very ideal. That's the way it's supposed to be. But as you grow older, you're going to find out that that's often not the way it is. And I think Matthew's laying out the truth because he's under the inspiration of God. He's giving us insight into this. Here's a situation where they have Jesus. They've already beat him up a little bit. They've arrested him. They've seized him. And now they're trying to find false witnesses that will give them a reason for killing Jesus, for committing him to capital punishment. Matthew wants to make it really clear that they could not find any witnesses to do that. Remember I told you about the scribes? The scribes were experts in the law. One of the heartbeats of the law of Moses, and I want you to listen to me, because as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to help you to fulfill this commandment. One of the major commands, you all know the commandment, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, but what's one of the major commands of the Holy Scripture? Thou shalt not bear, everybody tell me, thou shalt not bear false witness. I want you to remember that primarily Deuteronomy and Exodus, where that command is given, in the Ten Commandments, Yahweh is saying in the courtroom, primarily, that's where it all begins. When a person's life is on the line, don't bear false witness. In our own culture, I'd be willing to wager that most of you are very cynical about the hearing. Most of you have a cynical streak in you. You just say it's all just a bunch of baloney. But one of the things I want you to be committed to is that might be the way the game is played, but that's not the way I play the game. Did you hear what I said? You're going to leave and go out into a world where people do lie. People make up stories. So much so that we just accept it. Who cared what the truth is? 
You just make stuff up. When you do that in business, when you do it in law, when you do it in education, when you bear false witness and you lie, the whole structure is going to eventually fall down. Because you and I can't exist together, deceiving each other, lying to each other, especially in courtrooms. One of the things Matthew wants you to understand is legitimately, there was nobody they could find that could actually accuse Jesus legitimately. And they're upset about it because they, they in fact, Matthew gets this thing, they listen and listen and listen, and the stories are contradicting each other. They're not adding up. They know they can't go before Pilate with this stuff. But finally, with that tension, finally they find two witnesses. So we have a search for witnesses, and they all prove to be false. But now Matthew does a very ironic thing because he presents two witnesses that do tell the truth about what Jesus said. Look what it says. It says, then there were two. It says, finally two came forward. You, just, you have this idea that in the trial they were trying to find several witnesses. They listened a bunch. Finally two. And you can almost see Caiaphas go, shoo, man, finally, this is it. And the two declared, this fellow, now listen to what they declared. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, did Jesus say that? Yeah. In John chapter 2, in fact, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus threw the money changers out of the temple. And that was a big, that was a big hullabaloo. Because the, and the high priests and the elders and the scribes were all upset about it. And some of them, they send their representatives out to Jesus and say, Why, what authority do you throw out, you know, clean out the temple here? Who do you think you are? And he says, my authority is that in, in three days, I will destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it again. Now, what temple do they think he's talking about? Everybody tell me, what temple do those Jewish leaders think that he's talking about? The temple that's right there. It's a temple that Herod the Great built. He started building his own day. It wasn't finished until seven or eight years before it was destroyed, interesting enough. It took four days. In fact, in John's Bible, it says, we've been working on this temple for 38 years. You can understand, here's a religious community. They've been working on their temple for 38 years. It's one of the wonders of the world. All their focus religiously. If you're from a Roman Catholic background, this is like St. Peter's. If those of you that are in contact with Islamic people from that background, this is like the mosque in Mecca or like the mosque in Casablanca that Mary saw. It's one of the wonders of the world built right out of the Atlantic Ocean. Some of you are from religious backgrounds, and you can look back over your childhood. Remember going to beautiful cathedrals and beautiful buildings, even from a Protestant background. Some of you think about those days in your childhood when you went to beautiful, holy buildings. It's very powerful in you. Some of you remember being in services where there were clerics that wore beautiful robes and they had beautiful smells and they, they did incense and they did all kinds of rituals. And I want you to know that that is very powerful in every one of your lives. And even those that, that draw it all off when they're young, as you grow older, you're going to be pulled back into this. And you love your buildings. You love your holy places. And I want you to listen really carefully because we have lost some people that have come together with us. They, they were responding to Jesus. They were getting to know him personally. But then they couldn't get away from their culture. They went back into religion. They went back into ritual. It's a powerful thing. And I want you to see that these Jewish leaders are not just representing Judaism, which was really into their building in the first century. They represent religion down through the century that really gets into holy buildings and holy clerics and holy people that guard it. It's a very powerful thing. 
And if you trust in it, you're going to die eternally. Because your building's not going to save you when you get ready to make your journey over Jordan. Your priesthood isn't going to save you. Your holy rituals aren't going to save you. You are listening today and seeing the only Savior in the book of Matthew who can save you. And you're going to have to make decisions about what you're going to believe about him. And I don't stand before you just representing one of the religions and speaking to you about religious things. I'm talking about a person. And he's going to get killed because he cut right across those that were into buildings. That's why he's going to die. They think he was making a claim against their temple. And what was he really talking about? What was the temple Jesus was talking about? You know what Jesus was saying? He's saying, I'm the temple. Now, you need to think about it. You see, that's why I love Jesus. You say, why should we follow Jesus and not follow someone else? Because no one else can say that he was the dwelling of God on earth. That's what a temple is. A dwelling, a temple is where God dwells. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that when he came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, God, the eternal creator, came and lived in the person of Jesus. God was present among us. Jesus' body was the temple of divine presence. And what he was saying is that I'm going to allow this temple, my physical body is going to die. But then three days later, I'm not going to rebuild some Herod the Great temple that's one of the seven wonders of the world. I'm going to rebuild this body. And brothers and sisters, that's the greatest promise that anybody ever can tell you. You know what? This building one day, this building probably will outlast me physically. But you know what? There's going to come a day when all of this goes up in smoke. One of the easiest things in the world for me is to say, hey, we've got a holy place. You've got to bring your money. If you bring your money, you're going to be closer to God. And we've got to build this holy place. And I want every one of you to know, you are the temple now. But Jesus was the beginning of these fleshed out temples. Jesus is the temple. The amazing thing about the new covenant, a lot of people don't understand the new covenant today. Some of you are from religious backgrounds that go back into the Old Testament. They start emphasizing buildings again. They start emphasizing all the external rituals again. And Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin saying, it's true. They had it right in the money. He did say, and he probably said it several times because it's repeated in the Gospels. I will destroy this temple. And in three days, I will build it again. And he's speaking about rebuilding the temple of his body. It's resurrection power, guys. And that's what you need. In other words, if you trust in Jesus, then one day, if your physical body be torn down, according to 2 Corinthians 5, you have a permanent dwelling in the heavens, and you are going to rise again, and you are going to live, and you're going to laugh, and you're going to have joy, you're going to have love, you're going to have everything forever and ever and ever, and no building. No religious priesthood can give that to you, but Jesus can. And that's why he died. He cuts across all of history, and he stands before those religious leaders saying, I'm the temple. And that's why they're going to kill him. Because to them, that was blasphemy. Because they had to make a choice. They believed the temple was the temple in Jerusalem. They're saying that the Shekinah glory dwells in the temple. They're saying that that's where Yahweh has revealed himself. And they were right during certain periods of history. They were right on the money. What they missed was that the Old Testament promised that there would come another day. There would become a new day when God wouldn't just localize himself in a building. That God, the eternal God, would be localized in living flesh. And he would send his son. That's what the Old Testament predicted. And they missed it completely. 
And that led to the second question. First of all, Jesus was killed. You want to know why Jesus was killed? If you're a religionist and you're into religious buildings and you're into holy places, then you should kill Jesus because he's a blasphemer. Because he said this temple is no longer needed. If you're from a Jewish background, in 70 AD, the temple was gone and it's still gone. For 2,000 years, the Jewish people haven't had a holy place. That's what all the fighting is. You say, why are they fighting in Jerusalem over that stupid Temple Mount? Because the Islamic people and the Jewish people are still into holy places. They kill each other over holy places. They kill each other. Who has the right to control that holy place? What's the answer to that? Only Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus that comes and lives not in holy places, but the holy place of your heart. And he changes you and makes you instead of a violent, vicious, angry, murderous person. He makes you into a forgiver. He makes you into someone that can turn the other cheek even against people that want to destroy you. And you start overcoming evil with the power of Jesus' forgiving love. The high priest says, then the high priest Caiaphas stood up. This would be Caiaphas. He said to Jesus, are you going to listen to this? Are you going to answer? What is this testament that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. There's tremendous insight. If you'll listen, there's tremendous insight into what Jesus is saying. He says nothing. Some of you need to learn. In fact, you'll learn this. When people are guilty, they talk too much. And innocent people have control, and they'll often not say a word. They'll be silent. A wise person knows when to speak and when to be silent. And one of the ways you can know is you're trying to evaluate who's telling the truth. What's really going on here? The person that has diarrhea of the mouth and is defending, 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 defending. In your own life, when you defend, 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 you're probably wrong. When you're right, you can be silent. Because you're connected with God, like Jesus was. And you understand he's going to guide this. And you also have the wisdom to know that sometimes some of the most powerful communication is when you just say nothing. But then the high priest asked Jesus a question that he can't say nothing. He has to speak up. It says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath. And this is the climactic point in Jesus' Jewish trial. It says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is where, man, you could, if, you, if you were watching this in a movie... This is where the music would just come on and, I mean, probably go silent. So it created this very powerful, climactic moment. What's going to happen? And Jesus could have said, no, listen, man, I'm just a prophet. You heard, you know, John the Baptist, he's a prophet. Elijah, Elijah, yeah, I'm one of the prophets. Or I'm a rabbi, I'm a great religious teacher. That's what I am. And that's what a lot of people want to do with Jesus. You live in a culture where a whole lot of people don't want to face what Jesus is saying. Caiaphas nails it. He's a Jewish high priest. One of the responsibilities of the Jewish high priesthood and of the religious leaders was to evaluate messianic claims. There were messianic claims made in AD 6 by a Jewish man, and he ended up being murdered. Later on, after the time of Jesus, as we move towards the Jewish wars, there's several false messiahs. In 132, Bar Kokhba ends up dead on the trash heap of history. He claimed to be a messiah. And Rabbi Akaba, the leading rabbi in the 130s, said, Bar Kokhba is the messiah. This is a very real first century thing that's going on. Who is this person? Who is he claiming to be? And what does Jesus say? 
Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers the question. He says, yes, it is as you say. Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. And that cuts right into my heart and it cuts right into your heart. You've got to make a decision. If you're from a Jewish background, right there you've got to make a choice. If you're from a Jewish background, you have to decide. Was he a liar? And if he made a false claim that under Jewish law, legitimately, he should be taken out and stoned. I want you to see that that's the choice that Jesus gives you if you're, if you're a religionist. Then what Matthew wants you to know loud and clear. Matthew's Jewish, so he's, it's not anti-Semitic. It's not like a Gentile like me or a Goyim is what the Jews would call me, a Goyim, one of those that's not part of the people. Matthew's one of the people, and he's living in a century where already the hostility between Christians and Jews is flaming. But without animosity in his heart, he's just sharing, this is who Jesus is. And that's the choice of all of history. You have to decide, was Jesus just a good rabbi? And if he was a good rabbi, then he lied right here. He made a false claim. He went way beyond. He became a religious teacher that went way beyond. And that's what Caiaphas wants you to believe. Caiaphas wants you to believe this guy is making claim in the first century that blasphemed the Lord God because he's not the Messiah. He's an imposter. He's from Galilee, and he's a liar. And that's the choice that thousands upon thousands of people have made concerning Jesus down through the centuries. But there's another group that have heard Jesus say, I'm the Messiah, and deep in their souls, deep in their heart, something clicks, and the Holy Spirit says, that's the truth. This is God's son. He's the anointed one. And then Jesus has the audacity of claiming, but I say to you in the future, you will see Jesus, the son of man, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. The mighty one was a word that gives a lot of historicity to this because it's a term that would have been used for the deity in the first century. There was a care in, in, in highlighting and adoring the power of the almighty. So Jesus refers to his daddy in heaven as the mighty one, the power and he does that because we're in a context of judgment and coming on the clouds of heaven. And here's what I want you to understand. This is what Matthew's saying. This whole text is filled with irony. Who's really being judged in this trial? Who's really being judged? The high priests think they're judging Jesus. But in reality, the way Matthew writes the story there before the judge of the universe. That's the choice. You know what Jesus just claimed? Daniel chapter 7, and all of the Jewish Sanhedrin would have known it. All the Jewish Sanhedrin knew that Daniel 7 predicted that there would be a great son of man. He's the great divine one that comes from the presence of God. And when all the nations of the earth, in Daniel 7, all the beasts and all the nations of the earth, four great empires rule and reign, the last one, the mighty empire that comes to the end of time, and then it's this son of man. He comes to God, the ancient of days, and the ancient of days gives the kingdom of this world into the son of man's hands. And he returns just like Ezekiel chapter 1. When Yahweh in Ezekiel chapter 1 rides with the four cherubims on the chariot of the divine glory and Ezekiel sees this incredible manifestation of divine sovereignty and the, the ruling one comes into human history and that determines the whole Babylonian captivity of the Israelite people and all that God's doing in history and Ezekiel's able to see things from a divine perspective. Jesus is claiming, I'm the one, the son of man who rides on the clouds of heaven. You know what it's saying? One day, my Jesus is going to ride back into human history. 
That's what Jesus is claiming. Jesus is claiming, I'm the son of man. Jonathan and I were talking about the gaze of the situation. Jonathan and I were talking back and forth. Say, Jonathan, what do you think ought to be done? And he gave me some ideas, and then both of us just kind of over the phone, we just said, Jesus needs to come back. And I want every one of you as a father of Jesus to know he is coming back. And when he comes back, there will be justice. When he comes back, he'll discern the truth just by the look in his eye. That's what I love about him. And Jesus, this humble Galilean carpenter's son, stood before Caiaphas and said, I'm the Messiah. In fact, I'm the Messiah who one day is going to rule the nations. Brothers and sisters, you wonder why people curse Jesus so much? You wonder why the world divides over Jesus? This is the reason why. Because he is one day going to be the king of kings and lord of lords. The Jewish high priest knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He tore his garment, which, interesting enough, according to the Mosaic law, he tore his inner garment. He broke the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law said you weren't supposed to have be false witnesses. That's all the irony. They're breaking the laws of Moses one after another, and they think they're preserving the law. The high priest tears his, his clothes, which is a symbol in their culture of great consternation. He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, if you're the Messiah, prophesy to us. Who hit you? You got to make a choice. You got to make the choice. That's the Jewish trial of Jesus. Why did the Jewish people kill Jesus? Why did they kill Jesus? Because if you're Caiaphas and you're trying to preserve your religion, when a man makes a claim like Jesus made, I'm the Messiah, the son of the living God, then you got a choice. Caiaphas could have got down on his knees and grabbed a hold of Jesus' feet and said, like Thomas is going to do after the resurrection, my Lord and my God. Or you spit on him. You stand up and you spit on him. And as you go out into the world, you're going to find out that you mention Jesus, that's what happens. I want every one of you to be challenging your own heart to add yourself Have I just found religion? Have I just found a nice Christian culture? Or have I really trusted Jesus? Because I want you to know this Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the Jewish king of kings. I'm the Gentile, Lord of lords. I am the one that was sent by God. I'm the Messiah. This text is perfectly clear. The Jews reject that claim, and that's why they hand him over to Pilate. That's why they spit on him, because that's what you do with a blasphemer. So that's the choice, blasphemer or Messiah. False prophet or king of kings or lord of lords. As for me and my house, we've decided that we're going to get down on our knees. How about you? And what it means is, I close this message to you today, what it means is I want you to keep doing what a lot of you have been doing. If Jesus really is a Messiah, if he's really the King of Kings, then we can't just lock this up into a nice Sunday morning message. What Matthew is challenging us to do, this story is going to end in resurrection. And the Peter that denies the Lord in the next section is later on going to boldly stand up before the same crowd he was scared of. And this time, he's not going to deny. He's going to boldly proclaim. At this Easter season, what I want all of you to do, I want you to scatter out. You're going to be among a ton of unbelievers this week. You know what they need to see you do as a businessman, as a plant worker, as a person working in the school system, as someone working in our city government, and on and on it goes. They need to see that you're a really good worker. 
They need to see that you're really faithful in your job. You're not a false witness. You don't lie. You don't deceive. But man, they need to know, I'm in love with Jesus, and he's the Messiah. And he's the one that's going to come, and he's the one I'm looking forward to, ruling and reigning, because then there is going to be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It's not about buildings. It's not about religious clergy. It's about this incredible man called Jesus, who when asked, are you the Messiah, the son of the living God? He said, yes, I am. And one day you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven. But today he comes into your heart. He rides into your heart and says, what do you think of me? What are you believing about me? And I pray that every single one of you had know for sure that you come to that point where you said, I believe you're the Messiah. You're my Messiah. You're my king. You're my savior.